It is such a delight to hear two of the finest musicians I know uh, playing together in perfect harmony. Only everything in life are so harmonious. In this text, the prophet Samuel finds himself in a difficult situation and in the midst of a political conundrum. Up until this point in history, God was the Israelites' only sovereign. There were appointed leaders like Moses and Joshua, but God was really in charge. But now, now the people demand a king rule over them instead, a human king. And it falls to Samuel, the prophet of the day, to broker this new arrangement, an arrangement that God is none too pleased with. God seems to believe that human kings tend to be corrupted by power and can't really be trusted put the common good before their own interests. Maybe we all put too much faith in such men. In America, it is always men. When we ought to be listening to a higher power. Our reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 22. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, you are old, and your children do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them just as they have done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your children and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your children to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and courtiers. He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And on that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us so that we may also be like other nations, that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and set a king over them. 
hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I received this letter in the mail last week. Uh, the envelope, I don't know if you can see it from here, is stamped uh, with the words, Final Warning in large, unfriendly letters. And there was, just, there was something about it. I knew right away that this wasn't your garden variety junk mail about you know, my car's extended warranty. Sure enough, it was penned by a guy in Florida who calls himself Severin, the self-proclaimed prophet to America. I guess you could say he's a concerned citizen, to put it mildly. Over the course of this uh, five-page screed, he argues that America is about to face a total collapse in the near future. <clears throat> This is the last warning before the midterms, he declares. So if you think you're not hurting too bad with all of the COVID variants, monkeypox, the wars, the inflation, an idiot in the White House, and battalions of America haters that have crossed our southern border, well, these are just previews of the coming attractions. It's a little unclear what he wants me personally to do about any of this, but he seems to believe that as a preacher, I wield enough influence to shape the course of American politics. Uh, he says, I get so frustrated with pastors who can't see the writing on the wall. If this gets through the filters all the way to the senior minister, I just want you to know what crud you are. <laughs> you may have a pretty face and a good gift for speaking. Can't argue with that. But you're still a crud, and when you go down, it won't be pretty. That's right, I'm talking to pastor and priest, he says. Not like the good old days, when they would preach hellfire and damnation. Good old days. No, today you relax around your own swimming pool with a margarita, trying to decide between a new car or a trip, both charged to your ministry. I mean, the whole tone of this letter is just... Ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> so uncalled for. Just outrageous. He claims that he sent this missive to 50,000 pastors all over America. So I guess I can't, you know, take it too personally, but I do wonder what he expects me, you know, one person, one guy to do about the state of national politics. I suppose I have a little bit of local influence here in the pulpit, but you know, I've only got one vote, and I'm not gonna tell all of you how to vote, except to you know, prioritize your conscience over your wallet. I haven't got a super PAC to throw money around Washington, and contrary to what Severin thinks, I don't even own a swimming pool. I'm just a regular guy who's concerned about America, just like everyone else. I worry about plenty of things. I worry about the increasingly violent political rhetoric and the rampant gun violence. I worry about the willful ignorance and the banning of books, the systemic disenfranchising of marginalized people, the racism, the homophobia, the transphobia, 
sexism. The, I worry about the, the legalized bribing of politicians and the politicization of the Supreme Court. The entrenched inequality of late-stage predatory capitalism and the tendency to put individual wants above communal needs. I worry about the housing shortage and the crumbling infrastructure and the misinformation. I could go on all day. It all feels so exhausting and chaotic and unsustainable. Now, as a citizen and as a Christian, I don't want to throw my hands up in the air and give up, but it does make me think of the words of political theologian Reinhold Niebuhr when he wrote his serenity prayer. God, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, the wisdom to know the difference. Our scriptures often remind us of the inherent flaws in our political systems. Much of the Bible is dedicated to these shifting political fortunes, to the rise and fall of empires, and the relative sovereignty of God and human rulers. And that story really begins in earnest in this text in 1 Samuel, where the people demand a human king. Now, God is opposed to this idea from the beginning. God warns Israel that their beloved king will try to take more than he gives. He will take their sons and daughters. He will take their livestock. He will take their land. He will take their prosperity and hand it over to his nobles. Nonetheless, God reluctantly appoints a king, Saul, to reign over Israel, which begins the long chronicle of their political history. Countless monarchs succeeded Saul over the next several hundred years as larger empires begin to arrive on the scene to shift the geopolitical landscape. First, the Assyrians arrive to conquer them, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then Alexander the Great, and then the Romans, which brings us to Jesus' day and age and his political philosophy, which seems to amount to staying out of it altogether. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus famously declares, and unto God what is God's. A pronounced separation of church and state that was quite radical in the first century. Now, that being said, I don't want to imply that Jesus didn't care what Rome was up to or that he didn't care about politics, but I think he recognized that he could not challenge the Roman Empire directly without resorting to violence. So he employed more subversive and subtle methods of social change. I think Jesus recognizes, as God does in this text, that our, our politics will always be deeply flawed, and that as one system replaces another, it eventually succumbs to the same corruption. The real action, the real hope for positive change, I think, is far more local, far removed from the halls of power. Now, it's become somewhat fashionable as of late, to compare 21st century America to the latter days of the Roman Empire. Plenty of historians and philosophers claim that our nation suffers from many of the same dynamics and that we are in all likelihood heading towards some form of collapse, but that word can mean a lot of different things. 
In his seminal work, The Collapse of Complex Societies, celebrated professor and anthropologist, Dr. Joseph Tainter, studies collapse across a variety of cultures. And he defines collapse as a rapid, significant loss of an established level of socio-political complexity. In other words, he argues that as societies grow and work to solve problems, complexity increases. Our international supply chains are a good example of this. Additional resources and energy are required to manage that complexity. But eventually, the return on investment declines to the point that this complexity is no longer sustainable. So for instance, drilling for oil requires machines that are fueled by oil. But when that oil becomes harder and harder to get, and you have to dig deeper and deeper to get at it, that requires more oil to reach it. And you begin to hit a point of diminishing returns. You're putting in more than you're getting out. There's even a technical phrase for this called energy returned on energy invested, or EROI. I'll probably come back to this in another sermon in this series, because it's an important concept. Eventually, as one review of Tainter's book puts it, societies collapse when they hit a point of rapidly declining marginal returns on their investment in problem-solving capacity. Now, Rome, Tainter argues, collapsed for similar reasons, not because there were barbarians at the gate, but because it could no longer govern itself sustainably. Managing the empire required more resources than it could extract, and those resources that they did have were distributed unevenly. As dramatic wealth inequality and corruption weakened the republic, which in turn succumbed to autocratic emperors who claimed that they alone could solve Rome's problems, all the while attempting to distract people with bread and circuses. Now, American politics in this day and age shares some striking similarities, except it always seems like there's not enough bread, and the political theater is the circus. A veritable clown car filled with outrageous characters that seem more interested in holding on to power and winning elections than actually governing or making positive change in society. It all feels so detached from reality. Orwellian in its aspect. Kafkaesque in its absurdity. In his short story called An Imperial Message, Kafka writes of a dying emperor who whispers something of vital importance in the ear of one of his servants, a message intended for you, a lowly citizen of the empire. But before the courier can reach you with this vital information, he has to force his way past all of the nobles that are attending the emperor at his deathbed and out of his vast bedchambers. Then he has to get past all of the well-wishers gathered in the halls of the palace, and then the multitudinous estates and gardens of the governing elite, and then the administrative offices of the bureaucrats, and so on. As Kafka concludes, quote, he would have to stride through the courtyards, and after the courtyards, through the second palace, encircling the first, and then again through stairs and courtyards, and then, once again, a palace, and so on, for thousands of years. And if he finally bursts through that outermost door, but that can never, never happen, the royal capital city, the center of the world, is still there in front of him, piled high and full of sediment. No one pushes his way through here, certainly not someone with a message 
from a dead man, but you sit at your window and dream of that message when evening comes. This strange parable reminds us just how far removed most folks are from the halls of power. And yet we wait so very patiently for a word from on high to solve all of our problems. But friends, here's the good news of the gospel. We don't have to wait. We don't have to wait around for elected officials to get things done. We don't have to wait to make our corner of the world a better place. Now look, I don't know where the country is headed. I'm not a prophet, okay? Some are calling for civil war, others for a national divorce or a kind of balkanization of the states. Regardless of how realistic any of that is, and again, I really don't know, I do think we're gonna see a renewed focus on local politics, and maybe that's not a bad thing because it allows us to focus on changing the things we The phrase, all politics is local, is often attributed to Tip O'Neill, who was a state representative serving as the Speaker of the House for much of the 80s. Now, it generally refers to the idea that successful politicians don't get so caught up in national affairs that they forget about the issues that matter to their constituents back home. Now, I think there's something to be said for that. You know, while presidential scandals and outrageous posts on Twitter and awful photographs of Politicians and their kids holding assault rifles tend to get a lot of attention. In many ways, they have little bearing on issues right here in our community. I'm talking about stuff like housing and food security and mental health resources. Now, as a church that's trying to build a strong and sustainable local community, we are already involved in efforts to support all of those things. Beyond working with the page pads and bridge communities to secure temporary housing for the homeless. We've got folks that are heavily invested in securing more affordable and supportable housing right here in town. We partner with groups like Garden Works and the local food pantry to feed people. And I think we can do even more in that arena, maybe with a community gardener by increasing our annual quota of donations. We support two different counseling centers, one of them right here in our building. In terms of gun violence, statistically, much of that is either purposely or accidentally self-inflicted, and our local police department has taken measures to prevent that by providing free gun locks to everyone in the community who wants one. People at our church fought to ensure transgender equity in the local school district, and we work with refugees right here via World Vision and the Glen Ellen Children's Resource Center. These are all things that are already happening. This church is involved already in so many of them, and that's awesome. As I said last week, the needs are only going to grow in the years to come. As the climate warms, folks will head north, states like ours. As the national debate about abortion rages, regardless of how you feel about it, Illinois seems likely to become a Midwestern oasis for women's reproductive rights. As food and energy become more expensive, folks right here with lower incomes are gonna to continue to struggle more and more. So what do we do about all this? How do we reckon with these things? What more can we do to build an even stronger, more sustainable foundation for the future? I think that Severin, prophet to America, 
is sadly mistaken if he thinks that sending 50,000 letters to local church pastors is an effective means of change. We all know those letters are just going to end up in the recycling bin. He even admits this himself. I hope you will meditate on this before it ends up in the trash, he writes. It won't be easy, but the church is the only power sufficient to rend this victory from Satan's pawns. Personally, I think he'd be better off doing some local organizing. I mean, the guy lives in Florida. There's plenty to do. <laughs> but he is right about one thing. As our text from 1 Samuel reminds us, we have one true sovereign, and that is God. There is no one else on this earth who is really cut out for the job. So regardless of who sits in the White House, regardless of who occupies seats in Congress, we don't have to wait for them to make the world a better place. We can and we should vote, but we can do so much more. God calls us all to roll up our sleeves and build the kingdom right here. Amen. Amen. And cheers. <laughs>